You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2007. Today's episode is entitled, Created for Good Works. Inherent in the culture of every organization is its view of people. For many organizations, people are simply tools to be used. But what does the Bible say about people? Paul presented a view that people are purposefully created to do all types of work and that the work a person is assigned by God should reflect the nature and purpose of God. Well, good morning and uh, greetings from the United States of America to you all. I guess you all know there are Christians all over the world doing the same thing that you're doing. You all know that? You could go um, to the United States, you could go up to Switzerland, you could go to Australia, New Zealand, and you could do what you've just done. You could worship God in music and be in fellowship with other believers that are like-minded. Isn't that a blessing? It's a wonderful thing. I'm just amazed. I've been around the world in different places. The body of Christ is the same. Now, you sound different here to me. I don't sound different to you. But that's okay. We can communicate, and uh, it's just beautiful to be in, in worshiping God with His people anywhere on this wonderful planet. So today, I'm, I'm blessed to be with you, and I want to talk to you a little bit about something that may stretch you. Um, it's the fact that you have been created for a reason. Now, that may seem like an innocent, rather innocent topic to you, but I don't really believe that you believe that. I'm skeptical that you really believe that you're here for a reason. So I want to walk you through some scripture today that may encourage you to believe it at least at a deeper level. So get going. Let's uh, let's start with a little cartoon here. Y'all know who Dilbert is? Okay, you're familiar with Dilbert. Well, you know some of the characters. This is Ashuk. He's the intern. He's uh, a very innocent, naive person. And so he's talking to Wally. Now, Wally is the old veteran. You can see he's, you know, bald-headed, the glasses, the coffee cup. Uh, Wally is the consummate nonconformist. He is an anti-company guy. He's going to do everything he can to work against the company. He's only going to do what he has to do to keep his job. So you have this, this intern that's eager to make his mark and this Wally veteran that's given up on life. And they're in this conversation. And Ashok says, Wally! Did you ever wonder about your purpose in life? This is what Wally says. My purpose is to transport huge quantities of coffee from the coffee maker to a urinal. (laughs) So Ashok has to meditate on, on that for a second. And he says this. Suddenly I am filled with despair. Wally says, well, while you're up, give me another cup of coffee. That's kind of a humorous little cartoon, but it illustrates something very significant. And that is that uh, most of us don't have a clue as to why we're here or what life is really all about. If I were to ask you that question, what is life all about, what would you say? Can you all be interactive with me? What would you say? What is life all about? Is it about coffee, drinking coffee every day? What's life all about? Huh? About what? Him. Talking about Jesus, that's, that's a good answer. Get more specific. What's it about? I mean, you get a, you're going to go to work tomorrow, aren't you? What's life all about tomorrow? Worshiping God through your work. That's a good answer. Now, what does that mean? How do you worship God through your work? What do you do? Huh? Your example? That's good. 
What else? Add value. Okay, these are great ideas. Okay, now what the people that you're going to be around, I assume if it's like the United States, you're going to be in a sea of people that don't hold on to Christ as their Savior. They're worshiping something else, usually themselves or some other idol that they made up. So here are the kinds of things that they might say. I saw this on a bumper sticker just the other day. Work, love, dance. That's their philosophy of life. How many of you dance? Okay. Dancers might, might enjoy this. Work, love, dance. Okay. Here's another philosophy. When I was a, a young man out, right out of graduate school, went to work, I ran into a guy, and this is the philosophy he gave me. He says, work eight hours, play eight hours, sleep eight hours. So that was his philosophy of life. Does that fill you with despair? <laughs> oh, Lord, let it fill him with despair. <laughs> All right, how about this one? Get rich and then take it easy. I mean, isn't that what most people are doing? Working hard to get rich so I can retire. Isn't that what we want? Oh, I want to retire. We, at least that's what we say. I can't wait till I retire. You know, researchers have gone out and tried to understand, you know, what's going on with people in the workplace. And there's some interesting stats they've come up with. Just give you a few of them. One of the stats is that of the workplace, only 25% of the people in the workplace are consciously working for the good of the organization that they are employed by. 25%. They also found out that 19% of the workplace is consciously working against their employer. Their employer is paying them and they're working against the purposes of the company. Does that surprise you? How about this number? Researchers have found out that fully 50% of the people in the workplace hate their job. 50% hate their job. Here's another one. Researchers have gone out to understand how many people are in their dream job. How many of you guys are in your dream job? Just show me. Raise your hand. How many of you are in your dream job? Okay, well, that's about what I thought. The researchers found that fully 85% are not in their dream job. 85% are not in their dream job. Now, why is this? What is going on here? May I suggest to you that we don't understand what life is all about. We've adopted a philosophy like this. Work, love, dance, or work eight hours, play eight hours, sleep eight hours, or get rich, or something else. Why do, why do you work? Why do most of you work? Give me some ideas of why you work. Huh? Money? Money, because I have to work, because I have to pay my bills. Okay? And that, that's why most people work. Have they ever thought about the fact that God may have something to say about where you work and what you do? Okay, well, we want to focus on that a little bit today. But first I want to show you one more example of a philosophy that doesn't work. This is the philosophy to become famous. How many of you at some point in your life, if not now, maybe in your, when you were younger, wanted to become famous? Yep, there we go. There's an honest lady in the back. Thank you very much. By the way, another statistic that researchers have come up with, I love researchers. They, they come up with great stuff. They went out and surveyed 40,000 people, and they were trying to understand about lying in the workplace. And the question was, do you habitually lie in the workplace? Now, I have a real question about how they would get the truth about this, but 
they ask this question and they think they got the truth. Okay, now what percent of the people, these 40,000 people they surveyed, do you think admitted to habitually lying in the workplace? What percent? 80? Come on, somebody else. 90? Come on. Come on. It's an auction here. Huh? 95? 100. Somebody else. Well, the number they came up with was 93%. Now, y'all are doing pretty well. Most people, when I ask that question to, they do 20%, 30%, 50%. Very few people, you know, guess 90, 95%. Y'all are doing well. I was thinking, thinking well, maybe you know something here. But anyway, the, the point is, most of us tend to lie about what's really going on inside of us. So I commend you for acknowledging the fact that you want to be famous. Because most of us, deep down, we'd like to be famous. And, you know, being famous is about making a name for yourself. What was the very first thing that God gave Adam to do? Name the animals. That makes it very significant. Naming is very significant. Naming is imparting something about the nature and purpose and destiny of whatever you're naming. Which is why naming children is so important. Naming companies is important. Naming any organization is important. Naming is very important. And you see in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, what they were trying to do there that was illicit was they were trying to make a name for themselves. You see, in the end, the only person that can name you is God or one of God's agents. You can't name yourself. See, we keep trying to name ourselves. That's what being famous is all about. In reality, God wants that authority in and of himself. So here's some typical views of life. You know, work, love, dance, work eight hours, play eight hours, sleep eight hours, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, or become famous. Now, can we ask the question, what was Jesus' opinion on this? Would that be a good question to ask? You think he might have some insight here? So what would he say to this question? So let's assume that Jesus is here talking to us, and we say, Jesus, what is life all about? What would he say? To do, what my do what my father taught me. That's a great answer. Okay, well, he gave us a very specific answer. John 17, verse 4 is where he's doing his high priestly prayer. He says, I have brought you glory. He's talking to his father, saying, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, when you hear that word work, what goes through your mind? Well, we're thinking about his ministry, right? Those three years where he was with his disciples, right? But as far as we can tell, it was about 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, somewhere in there. What about those first 25 plus years? What was going on then? Was that work that the Father ordained for Jesus to do? Well, maybe the word work gives us a clue. So let's just take a look at what this word work means. Can you see this? This is the Greek word ergon. It means to work. Now look at some of the definitions of this word. Business. Employment. That which anyone is occupied. That which one undertakes to do. Enterprise undertaking. Any product, whatever, anything accomplished by hand, art, industry, or mind. It's a very broad term. Do you think when Jesus was making, making wood products with his father in his carpenter's shop, was he doing the work that the Father had given him to do? 
Absolutely. He was doing that work that the Father had given him to do. Now, it's very easy for us to look at Jesus and say, well, he was Jesus. I mean, what am I? I'm just a nothing. You know, Jesus was an important person. I'm an insignificant person. So it begs the question, okay? So if Jesus had specific work that the Father gave him to do, do you have specific work that the Father has given you to do? Do I have specific work that the Father's given me to do? I mean, each one of us needs to ask that question. So to answer this, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, which I'm assuming most of you are probably familiar with these verses. We're going to just dissect these a little bit from the standpoint of trying to understand about do we have a purpose, a destiny? Is there a reason for our existence? Okay, so turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, this is the NIV version of it. I assume some of y'all can see it. If you can't, I will read it to you. I'm going to read the whole text, then we're going to go back and break it down into sections and look at it specifically. Paul writes this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one, no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So let's look first at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the state we are in post-Genesis 3, which Paul calls being dead. Being dead. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now he's talking to the Ephesian Christians. So he's talking about their prior state. They've come to know Christ, so they're no longer dead. But let's reflect back on the state that we were in before we knew Christ. And it's a state that's characterized by being dead. Now this is kind of interesting because most of us remember when we, before we became a Christian, right? How many of you have become a Christian since you were an adult? How many? How many became a Christian you know, after, after age 10? Okay. How many became a Christian before age 10? Okay, a number of you. That's interesting. George, by the way, y'all know George Barner? You know who George Barner is? He's a, he's a researcher. And he's done some great research on, on worldview, think, and, uh, worldview and Christianity and all kinds of things related to the Christian faith. And one of the things that he's looked at is, uh, what is, what is when do people get saved? 
what basically are the age range that are most optimal for being saved. And basically what he's determined is you are most likely to be saved prior to the age of 13. Did you all know that? That's what the research says. Prior to the age 13, you have the highest probability. Now, we're looking at it from a human perspective. Obviously, we know the Holy Spirit can do anything. But from a human perspective, it appears that the way the Holy Spirit works is that age 13 is up, up to age 13 are the most important years. Which, you know what that says about your children's ministry? You need to put a lot of emphasis on that. In fact, what Barna concluded from his research is churches are putting their emphasis in the wrong place. We should be really focusing on pouring into these children. Because when you do that, in 10, 20 years, what you have is you have a bunch of world changers. Amen. See? So, just a little point there. So, all of us will remember back at some point, hopefully, before you knew Christ and you were dead. Have you, have you ever known anybody that you, you was a walking person that looked dead to you? There was no life in it? You look at that person and say, wow, there's no life in that person at all. Well, so you know what, this, what he's talking about. He's not, he, this is not a, a, a literal dead. This is a spiritual dead. He's talking about the condition in which we are in bondage to sin. We are following the ways of the world. Now, you know when you talk about the ways of the world, what do you think about? What are the ways of the world? Manipulation. Manipulation, but just the worldly, worldly ideas of how things work, right? For example... You all know the five jurisdictions, correct? There's five jurisdictions in, in all of life. Everything you do is it falls in these five jurisdictions. Number one is the individual. Number two is the family. Number three is the church. Number four is uh, work or the marketplace. Number five is government. Everything in life falls into one of those spheres. So you say, okay, let me look at those spheres. What about the individual? What's the world's way about the individual? Well, the world, most of the world would tell you what about individual's nature, that they are basically good. Don't you hear that here? And we hear that in the United States all the time. The assumption that the world is making is that people are fundamentally good. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with people. Christianity says we are fundamentally sinners. We are born dead in, dead in sin. That's the result of Genesis 3 and the fall of man. Okay, so that's, that's where we differ from the world. Okay, what about the family? What does the world say about the family? Well, the family is kind of an optional thing, right? You know, you just do whatever makes you happy. What Christianity says and what the Bible says is the family is a very sacred institution. It's a God-ordained institution. It's something to be entered into with, with great seriousness, sobriety. And it's, it's two people being God-ordained joined together. It is not just an optional relationship. So that's where we as Christians differ from the world. Well, what about the church? How does the world look at the church? Largely irrelevant. Largely irrelevant. And the way you know that is the concept of separation of church and state. Is that, that may not be as predominant down here. It's big in the United States. And what that is is a way for non-Christians to marginalize Christians. Okay, what we say, what Christianity says, is that, there is, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church should be the place where we are articulating the principles that we need to live our lives as individuals, as families, in the marketplace, and how we govern ourselves as a people. The church should be speaking to all of those spheres. How about the marketplace? The world looks at the marketplace and what's it about? 
Okay, well, it's, in the United States we say it's the dollar. Well, I guess down here you say the rand. That's all about the rand. It's about money, making money. Christianity says work is about glorifying God and doing what we were put here to do. Money is a byproduct of us doing that. Okay, and then what, do we, what about government? Okay, well, we've we, we got a world that's going amuck with governments, and the governments are all doing what was right in their own eyes. They're making up their own rules. The scripture says God defines the rules by which we govern ourselves as a people. So you see, we are different. Christians are different from the world. And so we used to live like the world lived, thought like the world thought. In fact, we were being influenced by the, king, the prince of the kingdom of the air, ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is Satan. Satan. He is at work influencing and trying to shape the way the world operates. And that's the spirit that we were in. All of us also lived among them at one time and gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were objects of wrath. That's the condition we were in. Okay, now we have regeneration. By the way, do you understand that every person that gets, comes to know the Lord is, a, is an object of a miracle? Because you don't come to Christ on your own. Because the Holy Spirit has touched you. That in and of, alone, in and of itself should drive you right to your knees. Amen. Man, it just absolutely sobers me when I sit and think about that. Oh, Lord, what an incredible God. Why would you regenerate me? I have no clue. But I am incredibly grateful. And that's where we all need to be. Because that is the state of being alive. That's the only way you have life is the Spirit of God has regenerated you. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 7. Because, but because of the great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. You can't make yourself alive. It doesn't work. You're dead. A person sitting in a coffin, and you're sitting there looking at him, that person cannot make himself alive. But Jesus could come and touch that person just like he did Lazarus. Boom. Instantly, we have life. And that's what happened to us. He touched each one of us instantly, brought us back to life. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised up, raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. Incredible things. Now one of the interesting things about what God is doing is do you understand that we're all in a play? Did you all know that? If you read, read on in Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about how God is displaying to the principalities and powers His character and nature through us. He's, that's what He's doing. So the, how many of you want to be actors or actresses? Come on, don't be the 93% that lie to me. There you go. I love this girl. She's a truthful girl. I love truth. Thank you. You know, most of us want to be on stage in some form. If you're familiar with personality, y'all familiar with personality theory? Y'all familiar with the DISC model? Y'all know that at all? No, you don't know that model? Okay. Do you know the, you know what a sanguine is? You know, very outgoing, effervescent, life of the party. There's probably a whole bunch of sanguines in this room. You love to be on stage. That's, that's just the way God built you. Okay? Well, you are on stage. 
part of the divine drama that God is working out on this creation all over the world right now, displaying to these principalities and powers who He is and what He's about. That's part of what He's doing. Now, we don't think about those things because that doesn't seem very relevant to us because we're all worried about, well, how am I going to pay my bill tomorrow or where am I supposed to go or who am I going to get married to or what am I going to do? We're all about us. Yeah. And we've got to start being about Him. Amen. So, being alive is about being alive to serve Him for His pleasure, for His purposes, so that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us through Christ Jesus. Okay, now let's get into the heart of this. For it is by grace you have been saved. This is verses 8 through 10. Through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now this is a pregnant set of verses here. You see what he's saying. First of all, it is by grace you have been saved. Now, what is the definition of grace? Okay, you took the bait. That is mercy. Unmerited favor is mercy. Okay, grace is the empowering work of God. That's what grace is. Grace comes the same. Grace is, comes from the word we get uh, gift. Charisma. That's the root of the idea for grace. Most, there's a great misperception in Christianity that grace is unmerited favor. That's mercy. Grace is about the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He didn't need mercy. He needed the empowerment of God to do what he did. We need the empowerment of God. So it's by empowerment of God that's at work. For by grace you have been saved... And what are we saved from? We're saved from living like the world, being dead in trespasses and sins. Through faith, faith is the intermediate agent. And this is not from yourself. Now, this is very interesting. Now, wait a minute. Uh, didn't I choose to believe in Christ? I mean, we tend to think that. And externally to us, it kind of looks that way. But what he's saying here is what you don't understand is you're, you didn't even have your own faith. I'm the one that enabled you. I moved in your heart to incline you to want to accept me. So it is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Now here we have that word work again. Guess what? It's the same work, same word for work, ergon. It's not by our busyness. It's not by our doing anything. It's not by our performance. It is a free gift. Does that not drive you to your knees? I mean, absolutely. When you really get that, when you really get it in the core of your being, it's on your knees, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Remember the, the publican? You know, the Pharisee was in there praying, and, you know, here's this, you know, low life over here. You know, he's over smiting his breast, you know, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And the publican says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. Okay? Well, that's, most of us are like the Pharisee. You know, but I'm glad I'm not like him. The reality is we're all just like that guy on his knees saying, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. It is the gift of God, not of works, and it's not from us, so that no one can boast. 
We are God's workmanship. Now this is a huge pregnant issue right here. Who created you? We all know that answer. But we live in a world that doesn't accept that answer. What does the world say? Who created us? Huh? We're self-made. But what? Huh? Okay, I, the students are here. The theory of evolution. The theory of evolution was put forth by a man who was an atheist. It's built on an atheistic presupposition. His whole agenda was, how can I explain creation without God? Prior to that work, that theory, being an atheist was intellectually not acceptable. Because you couldn't explain this creation. <clears throat> how many of you have studied this creation, studied science, and looked at just the intricacies of God's creation? Is it not marvelous? It's just, wow. I studied physics. And I just cannot tell you how many times I just was just, wow, look at these patterns and they're reproducible and predictable. Why should, one of the things that always amazed me is that I could do a calculation and then go to the lab and my calculation predicted what happened in the lab. Why should that be? Why should mathematics enable us to understand how God made the universe? It's because he made it that way. He gave us mathematics as the language of science which is an insight into the character and nature of God. I wish we had time to talk about Einstein and the theory of relativity. I mean, Einstein was a Jew, but he, he developed his theory of relativity by meditating on the Bible. He said, whoa, my goodness. Have you ever heard of Charles Towns? Who's heard of Charles Towns? Who knows what a laser is? You know what a laser is? You've got lasers in just about everything. You want a maser is? A maser is a laser, but it's not, it's not in the optical spectrum. It's microwave amplification through stimulated emission of radiation. Laser is light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation. You need to know that. It's going to be on the test. Okay? <laughs> Charles Towns was the, the man that we attribute to inventing the, the laser and the maser. And by the way, you know, the term invention is a misnomer. You know what's a misnomer? It's because we don't invent anything. We discover. We discover how God made things to work. Charles Towns is a Christian. He's sitting on a park bench in the early 1950s meditating on this. How do I get a group of atoms to work together so that they can, they can emit radiation of the same frequency and the radiation can, can basically be added together so it becomes very intense? You know, it's in other words, how do we get things to work together? How do we get atoms to cooperate and be a team? Isn't that a great question? He's sitting there meditating on this on a park bench in Washington, D.C. in the early 1950s. And he said the Holy Spirit gave him a revelation. He said every bit of as clear a revelation as any prophet of the Scripture got on what, how God made the universe to work. And it's from that revelation that he developed the maser and the laser. Do you see? Ah, it's uh, unbelievable when we begin to look at the intricacies of how God made the universe. We are God's workmanship, and he is marvelous in what he's done. He's created each and every one of us specifically, individually, purposefully to do something that he wants us to do. 
Now, there's, there's in your heart right now, whether you want to admit it or not, there is something turning in you saying, Lord, I want to know what that thing is I'm supposed to do. Just tell me what it is. One of the greatest things that anybody can do for you is help you discover that. Think about that. The greatest thing that I can do for anybody is introduce them to Jesus Christ and then take them to the full meaning of what that is, which is doing what God made me to do. Who created themselves? Who determined who your parents were going to be? Who determined their birthday? Who determined your birthplace? Who determined whether they'd be male or female? Who determined whether they'd have, you know, dark hair or light hair? Okay, I know the ladies say we can deal that. Okay. <laughs> Who determined whether he had hair or no hair? Huh? Because I fought this. I used to have hair. The reality is we choose very little in life. Because God has orchestrated these circumstances to prepare us for the things he wants us to do. We are God's workmanship. We are not self-created. The theory of evolution would lead you to believe you are a product of chance. And I propose to you that the theory of evolution has done a great deal of damage to the Christian community. The way it's done damage is that Christians have, well-meaning Christians, have tried to accommodate those that want to embrace that theory. Okay? You understand, I, this is well-meaning Christians have tried to, to, to find out a way to, to get along, to allow the people that want to embrace evolutionary theory to still be included in some way in Christianity. And what that's done is it's produced a corollary of evolution, and that corollary is that man does not have a purpose. That's the corollary. And we have, un, it's unwittingly and non-verbally kind of accepted that. And here's how you know this. Y'all know who Billy Graham is? You know who Billy Graham is? Okay, now I'm going to test your honesty here. Who here thinks that they are as important as Billy Graham? I love it. Lady in the back is my friend. <laughs> One honest person, okay? The, the reality is that, that most of us look at Billy Graham and they say, Whoa, man, I mean, he is an incredible, he's a, been a life changer for so many people. There's no way that I could be as significant as Billy Graham. Can I tell you that is a lie? Will you will receive that? As a, that is a lie. Before I came here, one of the men that I discipled, he and I have a standing conference call. And we, we did the call the day before I left to come to South Africa. So we were on the phone talking. He says, I want to pray for you. So, by the way, he prayed for you guys. He prayed for everybody I was going to be speaking to and interacting with. And I didn't know who they were, but he prayed for you. And uh, then we got through praying. I prayed for him. And then I said, okay, Randall, I want to ask you a question. He says, Randall, okay, I appreciate so much your prayer and concern for me, but I want to know something. Do you think that my work in South Africa is more significant than what you're going to do, be doing back in Arkansas with your family? Now, if you're really honest, you, you know, you're going to say, yeah, because you're, going to, you're kind of going out doing the ministry. Okay, that's what we say. But the reality is that Randall is doing the ministry right where he is with his family and with his business and with his community. And it's every bit as important as me traveling down here and speaking to you. And you are just as important as Billy Graham 
or anybody else if you're doing what God created you to do. Because you are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, you notice this word good. You've seen that word before. Good is a divine quality. You ever notice, we, we, uh, at least in America, I don't know if you use this term here, but we say something's good. Kind of just kind of a slang term. That's good. That's good. We don't think anything about it. Y'all use that term, good? Yeah. Y'all do that? Okay. So we, we just use that and we don't realize what we're doing is we are saying, when we say that's good, we're saying that lines up with God. That's what we're saying. That lines up with God because God is good. Remember the whole issue, Jesus uh, was interacting with a rich man and he, the rich man says, good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, wait a minute, there's none good but God. You see, Jesus recognized the significance of that word good. And so when Jesus is saying to us in Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, that we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, it's works that line up with the character and nature of God. That's what, we're, that's what he has created us to do. And we have this word Aragon again about business employment. See, when we, we think about works in Christianity, we think about being a missionary. Or we think about being a pastor or an evangelist, etc., etc. Do you guys know what I am professionally? I, I am not a professional pastor. I'm not a professional evangelist. I am a business consultant. And you're saying, what in the world are you doing preaching to us? Okay? Because I'm here as a representative of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what, I, what work I do, I still represent Christ. I know this is a paradigm shift for us. Because we have grown up in a very dualistic society that says, you know, what's important is spiritual life and all this work stuff and stuff over here we do Monday through Friday, well, we just do it because we got to make money. And therefore, we don't have any significance in it, which is why we're, most of us are not doing what God called us to do. Have you ever sat down and intentionally and purposefully asked the Lord to show me what it is you created me to do? You made me. I am your workmanship. I am no mistake. I'm not the product of slime and time. There is reason and purpose behind my existence. Why did you make me? Have you asked that question? Have you got an answer? Do you think the Bible might give us some clues? The Bible has lots of clues. In fact, how many of you are, are managed people? How many managed people? Anybody managed people? Okay. Have you ever read the Bible and asked yourself, what are the biblical principles of management? Have you done that? Good. You're way ahead of most. Most people never do that. Most managers just jump into management and they just take on the world's way of managing, which is usually things like you know being, being tyrannical as a manager. And we, we've got to learn how to manage biblically. You know, we have to learn to read the Bible with intent and purpose. Back in the 1930s, there was a... The man that founded Dallas Theological Seminary was on vacation up in Vermont. Vermont is in the northeastern part of the United States. And he, he had a cabin. Now, in the 1930s, uh, for young people, there was no TV. Sorry to tell you. In fact, I don't even think he had a radio. And you're probably thinking, what's a radio? 
Okay, radio is something that happened before TV. Okay, so he had no radio, no TV, no internet. You know, he didn't have anything. It's raining outside. And he's stuck in this cabin, and he said, and this happened for several days until finally Dr. Schaefer says, "Well, you know, I need to redeem this time. You know, I, I don't want to just waste this time." So he had his Bible there, and he says, "Okay, I'll just read through the Bible." And they thought, "Wait a minute! Now I'm going to read with intent and purpose." And so he said, "Okay." Um, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through the New Testament and try to find out everything that happened to me when I became a Christian. So what happened to me the minute I accepted Christ, was regenerated, I was born again, what happened to me? So he starts reading. He reads through the whole New Testament, and he's got a pad of paper and a pen. They had that. Didn't have a computer. Writes it down. He gets through, he counts it up. says, that's very interesting. He says, I wonder if I missed anything. So he does it again. Now, how long do you think it took him to read through the New Testament? It didn't happen in an hour or two. You know, he spent several days doing this. So he goes through it again, and he adds some more points. By the time he gets through reading through the New Testament, intentionally looking for everything that happened to him when he had a Christian, how long do you think his list was? Take a guess. How many items? He came up with over 50 items. 50 things that happened to him when he became a Christian. Now, I share that story to, to say this. We need to learn the, to read the Bible with intent and purpose. The Bible is full of revelation. I mentioned that Einstein came to his understanding about relativity by meditating on the Bible. That was a scientist. Dr. Chafer came to understand the depth of his salvation by meditating on the Bible. You and I can come to understand management by meditating on the Bible. We could come to understand where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, what God's purpose is for our life to a large degree by meditating on the Word of God. And we've got to learn to begin to do that to uncover the mystery of what God has put in us. Notice this, that God has prepared in advance the things that He wants you to do. Remember He's got this play going on? And you've got a part to play? He's got it all orchestrated. All the parts are laid out. All the, the people are selected. The times, the seasons, when they're going to come in, when they're going to go out, what they're going to do. Everything is all planned. And our job is to play our part. To do the things that God created us to do. The big job of parents... Let me, let me suggest to you what parenting is. First, let me ask you, what do you think parenting is? Tell me, what do you think parenting is? It's hard. <laughs> parenting is hard. That's true. What is parenting, though? Huh? Training. training. It is training. That's right. Something else. What is parenting? Example. That's a good one. What else? What's parenting? Preparation. I like that. We're getting warmer now. Guidance. Guidance. Discipline, all those are good. Now let me just kind of pull it all together and say this. What parenting really is, is discerning what God created that child to do, equipping that child and releasing that child to go do it. That's what parenting is. And it includes all the things that you said and much more. How many of you have witnessed the birth of a child? Okay. Isn't it a marvelous thing? I mean, it just takes your breath away. I got to, to see the birth of our first daughter. And it was just unbelievable. All of a sudden, she's there. 
And she was blue, and I said, I think she needs something. So they start pumping oxygen in her, but, and then she starts crying. And that was a foretaste of what was coming. <clears throat> but, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist by training, so I am inspecting things. You know, first thing I'm looking to see are all the pieces and parts there. And then I'm looking for the manufacturer's label. You ever look for a manufacturer's label? You know, everything we make, we put a label on it, don't we? Well, I'm looking for a manufacturer's label that said, this is Lisa, and this is the reason I made Lisa. There was no label. What's going on here? See, the reality is that God has given me Lisa, and my job as her father is to discern why God created Lisa. And then to begin equip and train Lisa to do what God has created her to do and release her to go do it, no matter what it is. Because God has created everybody with intent and purpose. Amen. Does that put a different spin on parenting? Does that now all right, now let me let me meddle a little bit here. Okay? Think about what management is. What's management? It's control. <laughs> I love it. Control, manipulation. Forcing, making things happen, results. Okay? Let me suggest a different approach to management. Management really is about discerning what God wants to do with that organization because that organization exists for a reason. You ever thought about that? What is it God wants to do with that organization? And who does he want to do it with? And I've already told you right now, there's an 85% probability you've got the wrong people in your company. That kind of, well, the reason for it is we are not intentional about finding the right people. And what, what good management is, see, or good, lining up with God, good management is helping people to discern who they are, what God created them to do, and help them to get into their place. That's what a good manager does. I have a client right now that runs a, um, it's a screen printing company. Y'all know what screen printing is? Prints like your t-shirt there. It's got Bo Peep or whatever you've got on there. I don't know, I can't, huh? What? Okay, whatever that is. But it prints those things, okay? <laughs> so anyway, this, this client of mine, he bought, a sem I have a seminar. It's called Strategic Life Alignment. I do. It's about personal destiny. It's a biblical model for how to find what God created you to do. And by the way, if you come to the seminar this week, you'll get a, a taste of that seminar. But this is an all-day seminar. He bought the seminar for his whole management team. He started out with eight people. Now, do you know what happened a year later? Half of his management team was gone. Was that bad? No, it wasn't, because they, they realized they were out of place. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Was the owner upset? Very tempted to be. Even though he's a strong Christian, he's still managing very much like the world thinks. But I kept working with him and said, we've got to have a biblical perspective on managing. And as he began to grasp that, it was okay with him now to invest in these people to help them find their place because he knows as he helps them find their place, what's going to happen to him is God is going to bring the right people to him. That's the way the kingdom works. And that's what management is, is helping people find their place. Equipping them, training them, releasing them to do what God created them to do. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our good works are individual and specific. Now, I just want to make this one point. 
A lot of people read these verses and they, they look at verse 10 and they say, you know, um, that probably doesn't really say what you're trying to make it say. It's not all that individual. Well, then I say, okay, look at verse 8. Do you believe verse 8 is individual? That by grace you've been saved through faith? Does that apply to you as an individual? You personally? Well, verse 8 applies to you personally. Verse 10 applies to you personally. Does that help you? Okay. I mean, because this, this is a big struggle point. Because I can tell you, the enemy is working overtime to try to get you to not believe this. If you ever really believe this, you will become a world changer. In whatever sphere God has given you, you will become a world changer. I don't have really time to go into this, so I'm just going to just remind you why God created us. He created us, why? What's, what's this all about? To manage His creation. He said this, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. We are God's rulers on this planet. And specifically, we do it by increasing in number and subduing. In other words, we master and we multiply. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our charge from God on planet Earth. Now, what blocks us from this? Well, Genesis 3. We have the sin, sin coming in in Genesis 3. And Christ, of course, is the solution to the sin problem. So we're born sinners. Christ comes along. He provides a solution for sin. And so now we, we are in a position where we can do what we're created to do. And then that brings the question, what is Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 all about? When you talk to most Christians about why we're here, what do you hear? You hear the Great Commission. In fact, usually you hear a misinterpretation of the Great Commission. At least I do. Because most people think the Great Commission is about world evangelism. What is it about? Read what it says. It's about discipleship. Make disciples. Evangelism is simply the first step in the road to discipleship. You have to hear the gospel and you receive Christ, you're regenerated, you're born again. You have just started a journey. The journey of being conformed into the image of Christ. And that's what being a disciple is all about. Why does God need disciples? Why? What's the point of having being a disciple? Go back to Genesis 1. To do what God created us to do. God made us, created us, we're infected with this sin problem. Christ is the solution to the sin problem. So now we are free with Christ to do what we were created to do. Do you see the picture here? Most of us think we're safe so we can go to heaven. Well, if that were true, then what we need to do is we just have altar calls. People come up. We get them saved, then we'll shoot them. Okay, boom. All right, that is saved. Okay, next. Right? I mean, that's what we think. It's just about, about fire insurance. It's, you know, getting your ticket to heaven. So, and a lot of people think, well, once I got saved, I can do whatever I want. That's not discipleship. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about discipleship. The Great Commission is about discipleship. And discipleship is about enabling us to be enough like Christ so we can do what Christ made us to do. Amen. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And that's why it all fits together. Okay, so your takeaway is this. Do you know the specific good works that God created you to do? 
the specific things that God made you to do. You and only you can do it because God specifically made you. Do you know what those are? If you're honest, most of you don't. But don't despair. There is a way to find out. One of the great principles that you will learn if you begin to study and read the Bible intentionally is the principle I call C4. It's in my book. You're going to get a glimpse of it in the conference this week. C4 is the principle by which God used to hire the people to build the tabernacle. It's the principle by which Moses used to hire people to help him with dispute resolution with the, with the Israelites. It's the principle by which David was hired to be the harpist for Saul. It's a principle by which people were hired to do food distribution in the early church in Acts chapter 6. Do you think there might be a pattern here? This is the principle for qualifying anybody to do any job. It's called C4. The important thing about this is that this is a tool that will enable you to find what God has created you to do. Well, we thank you that you are intentional and you are purposeful about the creation of every one of us. That there is purpose and destiny in the heart of every person here. And that you are a God who cares about every person. There is no such thing as an insignificant person. Thank you, Lord, that we all count in your kingdom. That there is no such thing as second class. That we are all first class. And our job is to humbly submit to you to hear your voice and do what you called us to do. Lord, would you give us grace to do that? So, Father, I commit to you these people and say, Lord Jesus, your will be done in their lives. Give them vision for your destiny and your purpose for their life. Let them know that they have a special work that you want them to do to bring glory and honor to your name. And, Father, let them do it with all that's within them. In Jesus' name, amen.